with episode 67 of Bike Live in a week where Mark Marquez won a sensational shootout at Assen. Wait, did someone say shootout? It's Coming home, folks. Welcome to episode 67 of Bike Life Here on Motorsport 101. And not to miss the opportunity for a completely blatant open goal based on what happened in the football uh, last night as we speak to you. England finally won another penalty shootout, so we are going to talk about this at every possible opportunity, even if this yes. isn't a football related podcast. Um, yes. Welcome to all of you. Um, any Colombians have already switched off, but never mind. Um, welcome to episode 67 of Bike Live as we look back on. Uh, the Dutch TT at Assen. In many ways, MotoGP went home last weekend to one of its most famous and favourite venues. And boy, did Assen deliver with one of the great MotoGP races, arguably of all time. We will discuss all of that um, over the next hour and a half or so. Mark Marquez winning an absolute 10 out of 10 Grand Prix in the Netherlands uh, to extend his championship lead. So many riders, though, played such a key part in a brilliant Grand Prix, including Alex Rins, who took his career best result. We'll talk about him. Uh, the two factory Yamahas and the two factory Ducatis, who both played a very big role as well. So much went on in such a brilliant MotoGP race, and we'll break it all down over the course of this podcast. We'll also cover all the action from Moto2, uh, as Francesco Bagnaia strengthened his Moto2 championship lead once again, with a dominant victory from start to finish last weekend. And we'll look back on the Moto3 Grand Prix in Assen, although it was MotoGP that more resembled Moto3 this time. Jorge Martin returning to the top of the world championship uh, with his fourth victory of the year, Marco Bezzecchi finally blinks in this year's Moto3 Championship battle. We'll also look ahead to this weekend um, because we have a double bill of superbikes. The British Championship heads back to the newly resurfaced Knock Hill and World Superbikes has its last round before its interminably long summer break. Um, that is at Misano uh, on the Rimini coast of Italy. Uh, joining me once again to talk about all of this uh, is Andre Harrison. Dre, uh, it's, a, it's a weird one for us recording this on a Wednesday, but it's just as well that we have one of the great MotoGP races of our time to look back on. Rene Higuita, Carlos Valderrama, Juan yeah. Pablo Montoya. Your boys took one hell of a beating today. One hell of a beating. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, but uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, good to be back. Sadly, I wasn't on episode 148. So apologies for that. But I'm back on, on, on Bike Live, and um, yeah, what a time to come back to one of the greatest MotoGP races of all time. Um, this season was due one like that, and uh, boy, did we get it. Um, that, was, that, was, that was a bit special. Well, we'll, we'll break it down in much greater detail uh, in just a moment. But before we do that, the places you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. If you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, at motorsport underscore 101. Um, is the place uh, to go. Um, our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.com. Uh, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both of our weekly shows, uh, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 uh, is the place. $5 backing earns you early access to both of our weekly podcasts. You basically get a link to the podcast um, before everybody else. Uh, if you back us at a $10 level, you have access to our Discord server, which gives you the opportunity and the ability to listen to these podcasts live as they are recorded. Um, episode 148 of Motorsport 101, God, we're getting close to 150, uh, was recorded earlier this week. Um, and it looked back on um, 
an, an Austrian Grand Prix, Dre, I know you weren't on it, so I guess this is your mm. brief 30-second uh, chance to um, give your two cents on what happened at the Red Bull Ring. An Austrian Grand Prix that kind of shocked us and baffled us right throughout. It was a race that went absolutely nothing like we expected it to. Sorry, I'm too busy celebrating Sebastian Vettel's epic beat him down on Lewis Hamilton into turn two. I'm still kind of incensed over that in a, in a good way. Um, and maybe not so much of the stewards because of that stupid blocking penalty. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, yeah it's it's absolutely right. Pickford one of the... is good at blocking penalties these days. But anyway, carry on. Yep, yep, quite right. Quite yeah, right. we're not. We're going to keep doing this for the whole show, listeners. Carry on. Yes, yes, we will. Um, we've got the whole list of references ready to go. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You see the scrolls in the background. It's about 14 feet long. Um, but, yeah, as you said, episode 148, Broken Hour of Motorsport 101, we'll, we'll probably be live a little bit later this week. We might actually get Pike Life out first, funnily enough, because of the fact we're recording this on a Wednesday rather than our usual Thursday or Friday slot. You're all welcome. But, um, sadly, as mentioned, I wasn't on this week's episode, but... Uh, Two cents. This Austrian race was a complete and utter shit show, with it, especially in the second half. Um, obviously, both Mercedes suffered their first double DNF, really, mechanically speaking, since they came back to the sport in 2010. Uh, Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas don't see the flag. Daniel Ricciardo suffers a DNF um, on his 29th birthday, the poor dude. Kimi Raikkonen very nearly steals his first win of the hybrid era since joining Ferrari. And Max Verstappen wins. Just like the form book suggested. Hmm. Right, right. And oh, yeah, Romain Grosjean broke an 11 race cold spell by finishing fourth. Okay, as, as you do. Um, all of that crazy shenanigans and much, much more on Motorsport 101 this late this week with Ryan King, RJ O'Connell, and special guest Hazel Southall taking my spot. Um, Hazel, don't keep the seat warm too long. I, mean, I need it back for next week. But uh, I will be back for episode 149. I can tell you that from now. Um, don't worry about it. I will be back for that one. But uh, shame there's not much to talk about for next week, which is kind of a bummer. But hey, we've got some corn. <laughs> That'll do nicely from Iowa. And hopefully more football-related jokes. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's a small matter of a British Grand Prix taking place this weekend. Um, I, where... I, 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 want, I want to forget this Lewis Hamilton-related yeah. shit show because we yeah. all know what's going to happen this weekend, right? Well, don't worry because most of the people at Silverstone will too because um, while Lewis Hamilton's probably taking pole position at 3pm on Saturday, the grandstands will be empty because everyone will be rushing for the nearest screen showing the football. So, um, they're, they're, so... they're, I hear they're showing it. I hear they're showing it on the big screen at 3 o'clock. So, uh, yeah, the F2 race is going to have nobody watching it at yeah. 3.45. Yeah, which is a shame, really, given that it's probably going to be a shootout between George Russell and Lando Norris. But, hey... Um, hey. All of that on episode 149 of Motorsport 101 to come next week. Of course, episode 148 is just uh, articulated to you. We'll be breaking down everything from the Red Bull Ring, which includes George Russell's victory um, in F2 um, in Austria. Um, right then, let's get on with the action uh, in the Netherlands last weekend, because of course it was one of those uh, odd weekends. You don't get them very often in a year, where Formula 1 and MotoGP are both on the same weekend, but we got one last weekend. Um, and let's talk about the two-wheels side of it and the brilliance of the MotoGP race at Assen. Um, as you said a moment ago, Drake, we've been kind of during a race like this because we've had one absolutely crazy, stunning, cra- incredibly entertaining and dramatic Grand Prix this season. Uh, but it was mm-hmm. for very different reasons in Argentina. That was more of a shit show where the weather intervened, where we had the craziness on the grid, where we had Marquez and Rossi crashing into each other. We had all of the yeah. fallout from that. This one was much more, I suppose, like Phillip Island last year or Phillip Island from two years prior, where it was just a just a brilliant motor race and basically the racing uh-huh. won out. 
It really did. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, like MotoGP, we were spoiled last season. Like, let's let's not beat around the bush. We were absolutely spoiled last season with the fact that we had six or seven races that could have easily been ten out of ten classics. We haven't really had that so far this season. We've had a handful of pretty clear winners, as mentioned. Argentina is probably the closest we've come to that, and that's mostly because of again as mentioned off-grid shenanigans and the small matter of marquez losing his mind um this time round, no all the talking was on the track this time round, and um man did the top eight of that of the moto gp field really put on a show even going back as early as saturday in the qualifying session was absolutely ridiculous which i'm sure we'll get to right about now yeah qualifying uh, well qualifying one to be honest it was not even the top eight in qualifying one uh, really gave us a show um I don't know what the history is on this. I don't know whether it did set some sort of record, but the top six um, in qualifying one um, and Assen were covered by less than a tenth of a second, um, mm. which which was incredible. I mean, Assen, it's not even like Assen's a particularly short lap. It's a minute 34 um, on race pace. I think uh, well, the fastest lap in qualifying for Marquez was a high 32. Um, mm-hmm. And the, I think the, re- the lap record in qualifying from Valentino Rossi in 2015 is a mid 32. Um, so it's not like it's a particularly long, uh, it's a short lap where you'd expect the time gaps to be shorter. Um, but yeah, 90, 96 thousandths of a second, I believe it was, covering the top six in qualifying um, from mm-hmm. Jean Zarco, who produced a stunning fourth sector to get himself out of Q1 and into Q2 um, and kind of rescued his weekend from there. Um, all the way down to Jack Miller, of course, former winner um, around mm-hmm. Assen, who was um, who got the rough end of that deal, ended up down in 16th on the grid. Um, Danny Pedroza even further back in 8th half second off and started 18th 94 thousandths of a second covering that top 6 um, of Zarko Rins who we'll come back to later that saved his weekend as well um, mm. Nakagami, Rabat Sayarin and Jack Miller um, and Q2 as you mentioned Dre kind of followed on in a similar vein because with a minute of the qualifying session to go um, the checkered flag is getting unfurled, ready to be waved, ready to signal the end of qualifying. And Dre Anoni is on provisional pole ahead of Jorge Lorenzo. Tell us what happened next. Um, yeah, the second group is coming round right as time expires, and it's been spearheaded by Johan Zarco, who comes over the line and takes provisional pole position for about two seconds. Um, yeah, I, I nicknamed this on Twitter. I called it Johan Zarco in How to Lose Seven Grid Spots in Ten Seconds. That's literally what happened. Like, Zarco had a train behind him. Um, <laughs> and uh, as, as, as they were coming over the line, we just saw a thing of dudes just set marginally faster lap times. It was very close. I believe it was half a second covering the top 11 um over the line on that one uh, it was extremely close um on that one but yeah like and and it all shook out in the end marquez tick pole position which isn't entirely a surprise but crutchlow snuck in four hundreds behind him and another 200 back was valentino rossi who got on the front row um so yeah valentino continues to pull out the big guns and Assen, um, as he as he tends to do these days um see so all of a sudden it shook out and the other hand zarka who was who at one point was on provisional pole, ended up starting in eighth, of course. Yeah, and only 0.28 of a second off pole himself, and he was eighth on the grid. Um, again, mm. just to show because it was, and, and you know it, and Lorenzo, who, as I mentioned, were first and second on the grid with a minute of qualifying to go, ended up ninth and tenth, respectively, um, which, uh, which says it all, really. And Alex Rins, who, uh, as I mentioned, had to go via Q1, ended up fifth on the grid. 
um, and that right. kind of gave uh, him the platform for what was to follow um, on the Sunday. Um, now, there was so much brilliant racing, so much incident in this race. Um, we're going to try and go through this chronologically, and apologies if we missed some things that happened in this race, because there was so much. Um, There's and, a lot. And, yeah, and we, we probably won't be able to cover it all as we go through it, but we picked out some key moments in this race um, that we're going to bring to you. Um, and one that I didn't add to the running order, but we have to mention it, Dre, because if we're going to go chronologically through this, of course, we have to start at the start um, with one of the best first laps we've ever seen for the aforementioned Jorge Lorenzo, who started 10th on the grid, and by the end of lap one, he was leading it. Um, if anyone's got a better one, um, I'd like to hear it. Um, it's like, that's, that's ridiculous. That was utterly insane from Lorenzo. Again, he started 10th on the grid. He had a brilliant hole, like his usual brilliant launch off the line. I think he was fourth by turn one or third by turn one because he, he went under the inside of Crutchlow in turn two. So he was second, and basically by the back end of the track down by turns nine and ten, he was in the lead. It was unbelievable. Um, Lorenzo had just scythed through the grid. Um, I know the Ducatis and particularly Lorenzo's had a, had a knack of being just absolutely excellent starters. Um, but by any measure, that's utterly insane from 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 Lorenzo. Um, a brilliant opening lap, and it set the tone, especially for the first half of the Grand Prix to have it like that. Mm, I'm just watching it now because I've I've got these recorded from um, from back on Sunday, and it, it's incredible. If you, if anyone has recorded this and has the chance to go back and watch it, just go back and watch Lorenzo on the rundown mm -hmm. to one because. He a lot of it's just been purely in the launch. Like by the time they hit the brakes for turn one, he's already fourth or fifth. He then goes clean around the outside of Rossi and Davizioso through turn one, and then straight under Crutchlow at turn two. Um, mm -hmm. and, and those aren't three scrubs he's overtaking. There's two of the best, two three of the best riders in the world, and one of the best of all time. He's just gone clean around the outside of um, through a fast right hander, and then as you mentioned, Ray, he then carves Marquez up halfway around the first lap as well. An incredible right. start to the Grand Prix um, from Lorenzo, um, who we weren't really expecting he nor Ducati to particularly figure at the front of the race, but um, they they were they were brilliant throughout the race. The two Ducatis they were they were genuinely competitive at a circuit that hasn't necessarily favoured them in the past. They've only won round Assen once um, in MotoGP history, and uh, as you can probably guess, it was a Mr. C Stoner that took that win um, mm -hmm. back in the late 2010s, um, and. Obviously, they've come close in recent years through the likes of Petrucci and obviously Scott Redding got on the podium there as well um, in a rain-affected race in Assen. But, but for the factory team, that's as good as they've probably gone um, around Assen. Um, now, Lorenzo continued to lead on and off through the first five laps when he came uh, into contact, quite literally, with one of his key rivals, Valentino Rossi. Now, uh, through the fast right-hand kink out the back of the circuit, turn 13, um, it has to be said, Trey, one of the great pieces of TV directing we've ever seen in that we are literally riding on board with the tail of Hawking Lorenzo Chicati when Valentino Rossi quite literally just basically rides straight through our TV screens. <laughs> um, I know a lot of Ross, there's a lot of Rossi fans out there. That's getting a little bit too close to the action. But um, yeah, you're quite right. I mean, apparently we could never tell from that TV angle, but um, apparently Lorenzo had lost the front quite badly on the previous turn and lost a lot of his momentum. Yeah, um, the funny thing about it is, is that like, whoever the TV director is, give that man a raise 
because like there was you would never have seen that coming in a million years otherwise he just happened to have the rear shot of lorenzo's bike and next thing you know he's getting a smooch in the rear from valentino rossi at 140 miles an hour um quite crazy to say the least but um thankfully both guys were able to continue no major accident which you would probably expect in something like that but it was such a clean shot to the rear of lorenzo's bike that they were both able to keep going um which is amazing in its own right but uh, yeah that we're barely tipping the iceberg on the scale of crazy for this race but uh that kind of again, it kind of set the tone, really. Yeah, I'm sure you've probably seen the, uh, the still images of the moments of impact where you can you, know, you can read the sponsors' letters on Valentino Rossi's letters. He's so close to your screens, um, right? And, and when you slow it right down, you do see obviously from the onboard, you can't see the front wheel of Lorenzo's because you you're looking backwards, but you do see a bit of a shake because I think he hits the inside curb, um, going right. through that right hand kink, which obviously unsettles the bike, um, loses the front ever so slightly. Um, Lorenzo obviously as Dre mentioned loses all of his momentum and Rossi just obviously with nowhere to go the, the only other place for him to go would have been straight off on the left hand side off the road um, straight up the back of the Ducati and you then saw on the uh, slow-mo shots afterwards the um, kind of slightly damaged tail of Lorenzo's Ducati um, that he mm. had to nurse through the rest of the race nothing that would slow him down particularly but um, obviously Rossi and Lorenzo both had to sort of back off as a result of that they both continued, as I mentioned. Uh, the next key incident came on lap 12, where Alex Rins started to get involved in the action. Now, Lorenzo is still leading at this point, um, where the battle for second is is raging um, just behind him. Um, Rins is emerging as a real threat through this pack and climbing up the order. Um, and through the tight to Strubber left-hander, where Rins was doing quite a lot of overtaking, it has to be said. Um, yeah. yeah, he was taking advantage a lot, as we'd often see riders... Um, taking quite a wide sweeping line through that corner to take the late apex, which is basically an open invitation for someone to just dive up the inside and, and take the early apex and get the position and um, try and sneak the position. Rins goes up the inside of Mark Marquez um, and the two come into contact as a result of that, Dre. And whilst I don't think necessarily either rider was particularly to blame um, for what we saw, much like the Lorenzo Rossi collision, both riders, in particular Marquez, were very lucky to keep going. They were. Uh, welcome to the weekly installment now of Mar Marquez Makes a Monster Save. Um, it's almost getting boring at this point. I'm lying. It's bloody ridiculous, and it will always be bloody ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it was another one where... Yeah, it was a bold move from Rins, but nothing particularly dirty or illegal about it. It was just a hard a hard pass, and um, yeah, just they, they, they have to stand Marquez up a little bit, and uh, you know... Marquez, like his foot's off the peg. He's all, he almost loses it. He's able to save and keep going. Um, he got duffed up a little bit there, but he was able to come back and recover. But um, yeah, I, mean, I don't think anyone was to blame. Race Direction had a look. They, they said no further action was warranted. And even Marquez himself said after the race that uh, he, he didn't he didn't blame Alex Rins for that one. It was just a, it was just a hard pass. He didn't see anything of it. And yeah, they just got on with it really. And yeah, that was kind of the spirit of this race. It was a lot like Philip Island. It was basically a punch-up where a race might break out at the end. Um, and yeah, again, Rins had a, had a good hard pass there. And Marquez, you know, had another monster save. But yeah, no no harm done. Yeah, I've just sent Dre a still image on Snapchat of, uh, of Mark Marquez. Oh, yeah. And you can see as he's, as he's trying to save it, he is literally hanging off the side of the bike. Um, I'm seeing it now, and oh dear God! Like when, when you sort of tell yourself watching that, yeah, this guy carries on and goes on to win the race. 
it, it, it didn't look that crazy in real time, but when you look at it like that from that still image, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's the kind of reaction, because that is literally, like, a split second later, he's on his knee, he basically uses his knee to sort of propel himself back upright again. Um, right. Obviously loses so much momentum, drops, I think, down to fifth at this stage. Um, because the two factory Yamahas who were just behind him both just slingshot past him on the next straight um, as mm. Marquez has lost all of his momentum um, coming out of that corner. Yeah, he did drop to fifth because Marquez, uh, because Davizioso, Vinales and Rossi all went past him. Um, mm -hmm. And Marquez would still go on to recover. He would then be battling for the lead on lap 21. This is five short from the finish um, of this 26-lap race. Um, with a fast-closing Maverick Vinales, who had recovered from a fairly ordinary start, when has that um, not been the case this season? Um, and another incident, Dre, where, again, both riders could count themselves slightly fortunate not to go off the track. Um, Race Direction mm. had investigated the Marquez Rins incident and quickly decided, sod it, there's nothing wrong, let's just let these guys race. Um, mm -hmm. And um, they chose not to even investigate this one between Marquez and Vinales into the bolt, where... Uh, they go into the corner side by side. The two make contact. Both go wide onto the uh, timeout runoff um, and continue dropping to third and fourth. Um, in terms of this one, again, difficult to really apportion any blame because neither rider, you would say, did anything particularly dangerous or did anything wrong. If you had to really say anyone did anything wrong in this one, would it be perhaps that Maverick Vinales was perhaps slightly ambitious in going for a gap about half a bike wide? Yeah, I'd say that. Um, it's it's. I don't know what Maverick was really thinking on that one. He was he was caught out by having to go the long way around on the previous corner, and as a result, there was. I mean, simply put, that like Marquez had basically forced him into the outside line for that for the next corner, and Maverick just kind of took it on anyway, which he was never going to make that pass. It's just not the sort of corner where you can pass somebody around the outside. It's it's virtually impossible and. Yeah, they they kind of, like they both went wide there. They both kind of outbreaked themselves on that one, and you know Maverick got the worst of it really. Um, Marquez again was able to come back, but he came back in third behind Dovi and Rossi, who were still beating the lumps out of each other at this point. Again, I don't think any punishment was was worth dishing out there. Again, I think it was just a, a little bit of a silly error from Maverick, and and I think Marquez responded a little bit by basically just outbreaking himself. Very similar to Valencia. I think he, he kind of just lost, maybe just lost concentration for a second and uh, went off the track. But again, luckily, no harm done. Mm, yeah, no harm done in the end. There, there was so much that went on in this race. There was the um, inter-team squabbling at Ducati, which probably ruined both of their riders' hopes of winning the Grand Prix, where Davizioso and Lorenzo looked like they were going to take each other off at the Tim of Chicane. Um, at one point as they fought for the lead they were both block passing the shit out of each other um, and it's very rare we get an 8 rider group at the front of a MotoGP race It was we had a bigger leading group in MotoGP than we had in Moto3 this weekend um, yep. which, which was astonishing um, but whenever we get races like this straight it always tends to result in the same winner um, it tends to be one rider just seems to rise above everyone else in these kind of chaotic group fights in MotoGP mm. Um, it is, of course, Marc Marquez, who seems to... We spoke about this before we started. He seems to have this extra gear that he goes to late in races in these group fights where he's able to break the field behind him. And I can't begin to think that Marc Marquez always had that time up his hand because surely he would have broken them earlier on. Um, right. he, he wouldn't have allowed them to get that close and be that close throughout the race because we saw what happened with Rins. It can easily just go wrong um, because right. these guys will always try and pile up the inside of you. But... It just seems, Dre, 
late in these close bunch races, Mark Marquez just always seems to find an extra level, an extra gear late in these races, which separates him from any other rider in the field. I, I mentioned it earlier this year. He has a seventh gear that no one else in the field has. When Marquez is comfortable on the bike, which he clearly was this time around, he didn't have his, his usual practice crash. I think he would try to exaggerate some of his problems. I don't think Marquez had any real issues at all this weekend. Yeah, a couple of another couple of, of, of crazy saves, but again, nothing. It's almost becoming routine for Mark at this point, as terrifying as that is to suggest. But. Yeah, like as he mentioned, like he has. I mentioned this before. He has a seventh gear that no other rider in this field has. When 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 the chips are down and he needs to win a race and he can see the opportunity to win a race in front of him, he has an extra level that no one else has. He can just bust out point four out of his back pocket at will. We've seen it before. We saw it at Phillip Island uh, last season, where again, like he had enough of the fight. He got to the front and I was like, okay, I'm going to go as fast as I possibly can. See if you can catch me. Nobody could. They were too busy still fighting each other. It happened at Haraf earlier this year that once, you know, he got past Lorenzo, no one, no one was able to chase him. The only guy that seemingly had half a chance was Dovi, and he, he, he didn't have um, the advantage necessary to pass Lorenzo like Marquez did. Um, it's happened on numerous occasions where Marquez, once he pulls the pin, he is incredibly hard to beat. And it happened again here, like four laps to go. He takes the lead of the race from Dovi and Ross. He gets to the front. And he's like, okay, this is me at 110%. Um, I even remember the, the, the previous all-time classic of Philip Island 2015, where he was a second down off the leader going into the final lap. And I think he, was, he, he just went into a mood where it was like, okay, I'm going to try and win this race, so I'm going to crash try. And, and that's what happened, basically. Um, he, he did it again here. And it's a sucker punch to the rest of the championship again because it didn't it didn't really feel like Marquez was going to win that one given how chaotic the race was until the last five laps when he goes to the front. And next, next thing you know, he's got three bike games. And, and next thing you know, it's over, basically. And that's what Marquez is... There's another gem in the Arsenal that just makes Marquez as good as he is. Hmm. And it, it just goes to show how difficult he's going to be to beat um, in this mm. World Championship in that he lost a lot of his lead. Uh, well, not a lot of his lead because it was a different rider that became the nearest challenger in Rossi after uh, the crash he had um, at Mugello. He has responded to that with second places at Catalonia and then this victory. At Assen, he's now extended that lead to 41 points. And given that we're now entering the summer and some races that on paper will really favour Mark Marquez, um, mm. you know, we, we, we know how good he is at the Saxon ring. He's nigh on unbeatable um, around there. It's the only circuit that probably runs Cota close for being a Marquez stronghold. Um, we've got yeah. Austria, where Marquez has also started to go very well. He was only just beaten there by Dobby last year around what was yeah. what we thought a Ducati strong circuit. Bruno, he always goes well at as well. Um, and you know, we're fully expecting Marquez to go well around Silverstone as well. He might have won there last year if his engine had blown up as well. We're getting into the yeah. stage of the season where Marquez tends to really perform strongly, as does the Honda, and he's already mm -hmm. 41 clear. Um, he, could, he could have two races in hand by the summer break, and that would uh, be terrifying for the and, field. And more to the point, he's 41 clear, not of a Dreda Vizioso, who's probably the only rider with a bike capable of challenging. He's 41 clear of uh, a Yamaha rider in Valentino Rossi and... I think the next three behind him in the championship are Yamahas because you've got Vinales and Zarco up there, but none of those really have the bike capable of challenging Marquez consistently or beating him at all. So 
Right. Mark Marquez, if he wasn't odds-on favourite already for the championship, surely this one's really giving him a serious leg up. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Like I said, the Saxon ring is next. It Marquez is virtually unstoppable around there. He's probably going to be 50 points clear and have two races in hand by the summer break. And as you said, there's a there's like Marquez doesn't really have a bad round anymore. He's gotten the bad rounds out of the way. He's not gone well at Aston before. Yeah, he He's won. won once before, hadn't he? Yeah, exactly. He's only won once at Aston before in 2014 when it was that weird flag-to-flag race when he beat Dovi over the line. Um, he's only won once there before. He's only won once in Jerez before. He won that race too. He only, I think, only had like one win at Catalonia before and he came a, a solid second to Lorenzo where his major rival did not finish. So, at least where I'm sitting, Marquez has gotten the bad rounds out of the way already. He's got three or four really good ones still to come with the Saxon ring. I'd argue Austria. I'd argue Aragon. And I'd argue Phillip Island as well. So, like, I don't think Marquez really has a bad round left on the on, on the calendar at this point. And like, it's, it's getting to the point where they're going to have to hope Marquez falls twice to realistically have a chance. Because... The rest of the field is close. They're all beating each other up right now, where there is no clear, in my opinion, number two rider in this championship right now. Valentino is there purely because he hasn't binned it so far this season. Like, on pure pace alone, Rossi is not the number two guy in this championship, but through sheer power of will and not making many mistakes and taking advantages where he can get them, he's, he's second in the championship right now. Maverick, again, as we've had major criticisms of Maverick this season, and again, he's third overall. Johan Zarco, I don't think he's been as good this year as he was last year. Again, in the top four, because he's not made any major errors. They're not title contenders the way it stands at the moment. So, the way it's going, like, Ducati need to step the right. I think right now, they Dovi... They number two bike in the field, don't they? Right, and Dovi is probably the only man, realistically, at the moment, that has a real shot um of challenging mark over the rest of the season the problem is the races that dovi wins who's right behind him it's mark marquez nine times out of ten we've seen it in their three previous dog fights is that hey marquez may not win but 20 points is is minimal damage to the championship the way it goes right now dovi's not going to win it by taking five points around out of marquez on a on an infrequent basis he needs he needs chunkier damage to happen to the championship and he's not getting it at the moment so yeah like for me like Marquez is, is supremely odds on. I'd, I'd say it's almost match points already. If he has a couple more rounds where other major rivals make mistakes, which was what we have seen so far this season. There was Zarco at Le Mans, Dovi at Le Mans, and, and Catalonia, etc. Lorenzo having a, such a poor start to the season where he's now probably out of contention as it is now too. The way it's going, it's Marquez's to lose, and it's going to take it's going to take something big for him not to win this championship for me. Yeah, absolutely. He's 41 clear and we're approaching the halfway stage uh, in the season. That's the only crumb of comfort, I suppose, for the rest is that we still have 11 races to go. Um, right. That we have the longest calendar ever. So there is time to bring him back, but there doesn't appear to be a rider-bike combination capable of challenging him. We have some good riders on, um, you know, probably the best riders, say for Marquez this year, are on substandard machinery and the best bikes are having riders on the board them that are making mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that adds up to one rider much further ahead of the rest of the championship. And in the end, he took what was a fairly comfortable victory. He was a couple of seconds clear of that crazy group behind him by the finish. Um, but Dre, we have to talk about the man that ended up leading um, that that second group, as it were, to take second place um, in the Grand Prix. We've mentioned him already. 
Um, and when you look at when you think of races like this, when you think of crazy bunch bunch sprints, bunch battles at the front, large groups, mm. aggressive racing, multiple overtakes, the odd physical battle on track. You don't tend to think of Alex Rins, do you? They weren't really the races that he won in Moto3. He tended to win his races um, by, you know, gapping guys at the front or some, you know, some great last lap overtakes, mm. tactical battles with us one rider. But when we had huge groups and many, many aggressive overtakes, that never tended to favour Rins. But boy, did right. he stand up on Sunday and showed that he wasn't intimidated by anyone in the field. Not Marquez, not Rossi, not anyone. Yeah, um, let's be frank here. Alex Rins buddied his way to that second place. He he had he was not afraid of reputations or anything. He 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 was brilliant into turn five on multiple occasions. He passed a, a plethora of elite level riders doing that. Crutchlow, Marquez um, pulled off a stunning move on on Maverick Vinales on the final lap, lap to to get that second place. He was. Phenomenal! Um, this, this, this one of the rides of the season for me so far. This is exactly why Suzuki gave Rins that extension so quickly and wanted the time now for a long-term contract. Because, like, it's funny we talk about you know we don't associate Alex Rins with with you know these these sort of tight group battles and one-on-one dogfights. The funny thing is, one that says a lot about the state of the field where other factories are now playing a hand in victories. I mean, we saw five different teams in that leading group at one point. Mm. But and second of all. The point worth making here is that both times that Rins has been involved in heavy-duty pack races, the other one being Argentina when it was a leading group of him, Crutchlow, Zarco, and Miller, Rins was on the podium that day too. He, he It was three guys into four podium slots, and and Rins was the guy that got up to the front and got there in the end for Suzuki's first podium since Maverick won that race at Silverstone a couple of years back. It's, it's their best result since then um, to have Rins in second place. And yeah, a, a, a great reminder as to why Rins was, was was signed up so quickly. That was a phenomenal ride from Rins. It, like, it, it looked like he'd been in the field for five years as a Wiley veteran already. This is only his second season in the top flight. And yet, you know, he looks like he belongs already as, as the true spearheader of the Suzuki team because Ian Oni, his teammate, was nowhere this weekend, dropped off the leading group and never really recovered. And, and Rins was right there beating Maverick Vinales, who was meant to be the Marquez stopper um, via a 140-mile-an-hour pass at the penultimate corner. Kind of says it all, really. Yeah, a sensational ride um, from Alex Rins, who, with about six or seven laps to go, looked like he'd been dropped from the leading group. We, we had that moment because the pace was fairly slow for a lot of the race understandably so, given that they were always overtaking each other and slowing each other up. Um, but there looked to be a moment with about seven or eight laps to go where four riders were breaking away, Marquez, Vinales, Davizioso and Rossi, um, that were just starting to gap the field. And then it suddenly came back together around the time where we had that Marquez-Vinales tangle at the bolts, which allowed Dobby and Rossi to squeeze through and the top mm-hmm. four kind of shuffled around. That brought Rins and Crutchlow back into play. And boy, did Rins take advantage of it with the pace he had at the end of the race. um, Took his opportunities where he could get them. Of course, he had the collision or the near collision between Davizioso and Rossi at the start of the penultimate lap, which allowed him um, to gain a position. Um, But he picked his moments. And as you say, his pass on Vinales on the final lap, reminiscent for me of the move Marquez put on Crutchlow on the final lap last year through that corner um, to take take third place, um, was sensational. Um, Mm. And and again, it's, it's rides like that, which... Yeah, if he can try to p- produce things like that on a more consistent basis, um, he will be every bit the rider that, that Suzuki think they've got. 
uh, and Absolutely. will justify putting their long-term faith in him. And, you know, it again, just emphasizes what a strong team they're going to have in the future with him alongside Joan Mir um, at Suzuki. And a terrific ride from Rince. A career best for him in, in MotoGP. Could go on to be a significant result for Suzuki, of course, because they are at risk soon of losing their concessions um, as a MotoGP manufacturer, because, of course, that was their first fully dry weather roster. Um, they're too good. <laughs> so, uh, um, oh, sorry, their second fully dry weather roster, because you know they had one um, earlier in the yeah, year. Um, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're getting very close to losing their concessions based on their dry weather performances, but I'm, I'm sure they'll happily uh, give those up. It means they're competitive and challenging for, for podiums and wins which it looks like they're doing now. Uh, terrific result from Rins. Third in the end went to Maverick Vinales, who, as we mentioned, got carved up by his fellow Spaniard on the final lap, two corners out from the finish. And a result that he badly needed, Dre. I mean, I don't think necessarily this race told us that his problems are behind him, because he still dropped eighth on the first lap. Um, and I think in many ways he was slightly fortunate uh, in that the pace at the front of the field was so slow because of all the overtakes mm. that he never got dropped. Uh, at the start of the race, even though he was down in eight. So he was able to, you know, by the time he got up to speed and was able to show what great race pace he had, he wasn't far behind. He was still in the group and was able to climb his way up to the front of the group and finish third. Um, right. So whilst it doesn't necessarily show us that Vinales has got all his problems uh, behind him, nevertheless, a result that Maverick badly needed. Yeah, um, ultimately points mean prizes, and Maverick, yeah, there's no getting around it. Third place is, I think, the joint best result. Oh, the best result since Koto. He finished second that day, but it's only his second podium of the season, I think. Mm. And given Yamaha's current struggles, which have been well documented, I mean, they didn't win. This was clearly their best chance to win a Grand Prix, probably since, you know, Maverick's early form at the end, at the start of last season. Um, even so, I mean, third is still a solid result for Maverick. I, I think he'll take it in the grand scheme of things. I don't think he'll be too disappointed by that. But fact still remains, it, the race still highlighted the typical Maverick problems, is that is that he was beaten up at the end there by Alex Rins. He was cut up there and was, and was basically outclassed at the end by, by a fearless Rins. But on top of that... Um, Simply put, it was this, it was another case where Maverick had a bad start and lost ground to the leading group. The blessings for Maverick in this case was because the race pace was so slow and no one could really break free till the final five laps purely because, again, everybody was passing each other. There was 175 overtakes mm. during this race, mm. which, according to uh, Matt Burt, who quite cleverly worked out, that's an overtake on average every 14 seconds <laughs> during this race. Um, yeah, 14 seconds for the average overtake on during this race. So, yeah, um, it's the most overtakes in a race that's been recorded since records began. So, 175 passes. So, as a pure result of that, given that most of them are in the leading group, it was going to bring riders who are normally a bit slower than this into play. And Valentino was, again, for me, the faster of the Yamahas and the more comfortable of the Yamahas this weekend. It just didn't work out for him due to the multiple incidents we had during the race where guys got duffed up. And they were punished for it. I mean, we saw it. Rossi was in contention for the win. Yeah, he he was in. Like, he looked like he was going to be the only guy able to give chase to Marquez later on, wasn't he? Until he got dumped yeah. by Davizioso. Exactly. With about three laps to go, Dovi, you know, it, it accidentally runs Rossi wide and off the track, and he has to sit the bike up, and that was the end of Rossi's challenge for the for the victory. Um, Dovi just seemed to have it in the bag after that one in terms of the the fight for second, and it ended up 
fighting again on the yeah, final lap as a, as a result as well. Um, Valentino Rossi, his helmet probably more red than yellow at that point, looking for revenge. But um, yeah, simply put, it was it was it was that sort of race where the guy that rode the cleanest race was going to end up on top, and in this case, it it, it was Maverick. And to a lesser degree, Alex Rins, who had the guts to pass where other guys weren't thinking of passing that came in second. So, uh, yeah, uh, br- brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff indeed um, from, from, from from you know, the Yamahas. They, they tried to make it competitive. I mean, Rossi was great. Maverick had the, had the uh, had similar Maverick-esque problems. But, hey, third place is a step in the right direction for the team at the moment. And I think given their overall competitiveness of the weekend, I don't think Yamaha will be too disappointed. The only problem is we have the Saxon ring and Austria next. Yeah, two so rounds they were pretty favor them. Yeah. They, they struggled up yeah. both. Um, exactly. Last year, the Yamaha, if it has, well, I was about to say, if it has a weakness, it clearly has many of them. Um, but it, it doesn't have the ultimate top end speed of the Ducati and the Honda, which it kind of needs around Austria. Um, and it's never particularly gone well around the Saxon ring, which is historically a Honda track. Um, now, as far as the Italians that we just mentioned are concerned, they finished fourth and fifth at the end of Vizioso. Um, and Rossi. Um, I mean, it's difficult to be too critical, isn't it, Dre, of either of them. I mean, as I say, they finished fourth and fifth. Both could easily have finished higher. Um, and they kind of slowed each other up in the end when Marquez right. started to break away as they both were trying to be the one to give chase. And in the end, neither gave chase because they held each other up. Um, but mm-hmm. again, it was just one of those races where when you have an eight-man leading group, you're always bound to have someone who finished very close to the winner and finishes down the order. And in the end, Dovi and Rossi finished fourth and fifth purely through, again, just being wrong place at wrong wrong place, wrong time. Would that be the best way of putting it? Yeah, I mean, this it's hard to get a read on this because what we saw in Assen, we don't normally see. Like, this is... This was a multiple bike, multiple manufacturer, multiple team dogfight. And even I remember rewatching the race in the background right now. Like there's six laps to go and there's three seconds covering the top eight. That just doesn't normally happen. So yeah, it's at hard the end to really of, get... at the end of lap twenty one, five to go, Rossi leads over the line. He gets passed into turn one by Davizioso, who thus takes the lead, and neither yeah. of them finish on the podium. Yeah. It's just that sort of race where there were so many incidents, or so many minor incidents, so many examples of guys getting duffed up and, and you know, guys losing a second, two seconds by minor mistakes that, you know, it's, you can't, you want to read into the results, but you also know you can't really run, you know, run into the results too much because it was such a crazy race of so many incidents that ultimately, have, you know, had an effect on the, ref- on the final result that, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to really judge on this one. And again, I don't think Dovi or Rossi did anything particularly wrong. That was the closest Rossi's looked like to win in a race since this very Grand Prix last year. Um, which was, I don't think it was the last time. Yeah, and Dovi, who doesn't normally go well at Assen, was the best he's looked at Assen in his MotoGP career to date. So, you know, not since the second he had in the flag-to-flag race in 2014. So... Yeah, like for me, they didn't really do anything wrong. It was just that sort of race where anything could and most likely did happen. And uh, the result doesn't tell the full story, in my humble opinion, with that one. And like I said, Rossi could have won that race, Dovi could have won that race, and it would not have surprised me given the context of how it played out. So, yeah, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just a little bit unlucky that they they, they basically held each other up and, you know, tripped over each other so much. You know, it, it opens the door for other people. In this case, it was probably Rins and Vinales that was, uh, 
you know the the, the real benefactors on on that just on that scenario because I think they weren't quite as quick as Rossi and Dovi was in this race, but as a result, you know they've, they've come into second and third and they've had to settle for fourth and fifth. Mm. Uh, in the in the end, we had seven riders covered by just four and a half seconds across the finish line um, at the end, and obviously. The, the leader of that was 2.2 clear of the next rider. So two and a half seconds covered second to seventh um, right. across the line. The last two riders in that group were Cal Crutchlow, who um, was, whenever he started to close in on the front runners, BT Sport in, obviously got rather excited, but he always tended to spend more of that race at the back of the group than anywhere near the front of it. He never, I don't think he ever ran in the top three at any stage, did he? Uh, he was always right. at the back of the group and, just able to stay there when the pace was slowed down. It just seemed to me whenever the pace got quicker, Crutchlow started to fade back a bit um, in that race. And obviously once it slowed mm-hmm. down, he got just towed back in again. And likewise, Jorge Lorenzo had the executive order carried out on him eventually. Um, mm. And he finished seventh. And it he, again, similar to Crutchlow, whenever the pace really picked up, Lorenzo started to fade. And... An interesting moment, I have to say, Dre, in that obviously he was beaten to the flag by Davizioso on this occasion, and it did just make me think a little bit that some people might have got a little excited, and I could understand why with Lorenzo's back-to-back sure. wins, thinking, sure. hey, Lorenzo's back, he's back to his best, he's clearly figured out this Ducati. Well, maybe a race like this and a result of this just maybe cools those jets a little bit and tells us that he's not quite the finished article on that bike just yet. That was basically Le Mans for Lorenzo. Yeah. You know, got a brilliant start, took the lead in the early period, but once everybody else found their feet, he got duffed up and he fell back. Um, that was a bit more like the Lorenzo we've seen before the two wins he had earlier in the mm-hmm. season. So, yeah, it felt a lot more like that sort of race from Jorge on this one. And this was a golden chance for Lorenzo to really, you know, get another win, to get three in a row, and he put himself in the perfect position to do it, but... Once again, it's like once the pace picked up at the end and everyone started to push the limits of the bike and, you know, their respective bikes and get up there, Lorenzo faded. Um, just didn't quite have it have it in him to challenge for the win. But, yeah, I, I, it is a little bit of a cooler in terms of um, the, the Lorenzo hype train, given, you know, how dominant he was the last two races. But, uh, again, it goes to show you more about the state of the series where, you know, you, a guy can completely dominate two rounds and then go to Assen and then look, you know, a little bit second rate given he fell behind the two leading groups that we had at the end of the race. So again, it's another compliment to the series and it's competitive balance at the moment that Jorge Lorenzo finds his feet two rounds in a row and then in the third round gets stuffed up again. It's it's, it's crazy how it turns out. Mm, and much like Davizioso, he's not got the greatest record historically around Assen uh, either. Mm. Um, yeah, he finished seventh ahead of Joan Zarco who was a little bit quiet, it has to be said. Scraped his way out of Q1 and then ended up qualifying in the top 12. Finished 8th. Ahead of Alvaro Bautista in ninth. He was only 7.5 seconds off the win himself on his Aspar slash Angel Nieto Ducati. Uh, Jack Miller rounded out the top 10 ahead of Andre Iannone, who got a two-second penalty for shortcutting. Um, and that costed 10th to Miller. Um, Paul Espargaro 12th on the KTM ahead of his brother Alessio on the Aprilia, Scott Redding on the other Aprilia, and Danny Pedrosa took the final point on the Honda. Um, he had a dreadful weekend, qualified 18th, finished 15th. Um, he was 16 seconds off the race winner, 16.043 seconds, which is the shortest gap between the first and last point scorers in MotoGP Premier Class Grand Prix history. Um, and... Mm. 
Drake, you said a moment ago when we were talking about Lorenzo, it just goes to show how competitive the series is nowadays. Nothing <clears throat> exemplifies how competitive MotoGP is nowadays than the fact that the entire top 15 was covered by 16 seconds. Yeah, the closest top finish in the history of GP motorcycle racing. Um, <laughs> we've, we've come a long way, folks. Um, again, it wasn't all that long ago that we walk into a Grand Prix thinking only one of a, any one of four guys was going to win a race and they were probably going to be an orange or blue. Um, and again, this was a, a wonderful showcase of how far the sport has come. Yeah, sure, Marquez won it fairly comfortably in the end, but let's not forget in, in that leading group of eight, we had, you know, world titles, race winners, young upsurgent talent um, under the age of 23, um, and guys from six different teams in the leading battle for the win, including a team on concessions and a, and, a, and two teams on independent machinery in Zarco and Crutchlow, who you know are running for independent teams and do not have all the resources that Repsol, Honda, and you know the movie star Yamaha team respectively have. Um, and Danny Pedrosa, a guy who one is one of the greatest riders you've ever seen, was in 15th on the on the edge of the points, and he was 16 seconds off the win, which is which would not be disastrous in many of these races no. in the past. Um, that that might get you a top six a couple of years ago. So, yeah, like it's it, it shows how far the series has come. It's shown that Dorna has done a brilliant job in balancing the books to a degree where the best riders and the best teams will still win, but in such a way now where every weekend feels fresh. Every weekend now feels like we don't know who's going to win necessarily. Only a handful of rounds are, are dead certs really on the calendar at the moment. Even Austria, which came in and, and first time out, was a was a Ducati signature round. It looked like it was almost built for them. Um, has now turned into a race where we had Marquez and Dovi fight for the win just a, just a year on. So the, the way, I mean, it, it's amazing that all these big factories and their forms can often dip or they can shift and things can change. But um, yeah, the field is closer than it's ever been. And that's been wonderful to see. And again, Aslan was a fantastic demonstration of just how far Dorna has come in, in terms of making the series more competitive and hence more entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right in that they, yeah, they, they, the, the, the best will still win. The cream still rises to the top, but we'll have much more entertainment and much more of a competition um, on the route to getting there. Because, you know, you just need to look at, you know, pick out four of the best races we've had in the last four or five years and four of the best MotoGP races of all time. Uh, Mizano, 2015, Phillip Island, 2015, Phillip Island last year and Assen this year all had the same winner uh, in Mar Marquez, but that does not make them any less entertaining and any less thrilling um, of, of a race for it. They were all absolute all-time classics, um, even if Mark Marquez won them all. Um, you, you've already heard the result. Let's give you the championship standings as they run now uh, with eight races of 19 gone. Mark Marquez has 140 points. Um, he leads Valentino Rossi by 41. Um, Maverick Vinales is six points further back in third. He is now the only rider in the field now to have scored points in every single race uh, because Daniel Petrucci, who was the other, has uh, no longer scored points every race. He crashed out last weekend. Um, Joan Zarco is fourth on 81 points, two ahead of Davizioso, who jumped back up into fifth. Um, he's on 79, so he trails Mark Marquez by 61 points. 
Um, Cal Crutchlow is eighth, also on 79. He and Davizioso both won a race each. Davizioso is ahead of him on count back of having more seconds. Um, Jorge Lorenzo is seventh on 75 points. Um, Daniel Petrucci drops to eighth on 71. Uh, Yanone also on 71 after he only finished 11th. Jack Miller in 10th in the championship after finishing 10th in the race last weekend. And Alex Rins jumps up to 11th now on 53 points with his second podium of the year, ahead of Danny Pedrosa, who drops to 12th. Um, we will have more news on him, most likely on next week's edition, episode 68 of Bike Live, because he has announced a press conference for the Saxon Ring, where he will clarify his future either way, whether he's retiring or whether he's going to be riding a Patronus-backed Yamaha in 2019. We'll have news on that next week on the podcast, but for now, Danny Pedrosa is having a pretty trying season uh, in to Moto2 next and the uh, continuing toing and throwing of the uh, championship battle between Francesco Bagnaia and Miguel Oliveira. In the last round at Catalunya, although he didn't win the race, it very much swung Oliveira's way, finishing second from way back on the grid whilst his championship mm. rival Francesco Bagnaia um, had a poor race by comparison, finished down in eighth. This time, though, it was pretty apparent, Dre, pretty much from Friday, who the man to beat was this weekend. It was Francesco Bagnaia. If you discount the morning warm-up on the Sunday, Bagnaia was quickest in every single session. Quite clearly, the dominant force at Assen. Yeah, Peko wins, lol. That was a astronomic weekend from Peko Bagnaia. It never really looked like he was anything less than fastest all weekend long. He he rode magnificently um, and did it again here. You know, took the early lead, led from the front, and no one could really go with him. And he just inched out more and more of a lead. The, the attempts turned into seconds. It was, I think, it was just over three by the time it was all said. And I know, I know Baldessari was reading him in a little bit, um, but we'll get to why that suddenly stopped at the end of the race. But uh, yeah, Pecco never looked like he wasn't going to win this weekend. I know he loves Assen very much. It was the home of his first GP victory when he was riding for Mahindra in Moto3. He's actually, didn't he really? He actually has it tattooed on his arm, believe it or not. Um, that's how much Assen means to him. Um, so yeah, like he, he loves Assen. It's, for him, it's his favorite track. It's the one he wants to win round the most. And he never looked like he wasn't going to win there. It was a flawless, flawless weekend from, from, from Pecco Bagnaia. Mm, and, and just the result he needed, given that when we're, we're learning more and more about Pecco as we go this season, I mean, we all know already that he's a stunning talent. He's going to be um, mm. a front runner in most GP in the future. We know he's going to be riding a Pramac Ducati next year um, with uh, Jack Miller as his teammate in MotoGP. Um, but this is the first time we've seen him compete for a world championship because he never really had the, the equipment to fight for a championship in mm. Moto3. As Dre mentioned, he's been on the Mahindra uh, for most of his Moto3 career. Um, so Moto2, we were, we were waiting to see how he'd respond to that disappointment um, of Catalonia where he only finished 8th. But um, he reacted much in the same way he reacted to his poor result back in Argentina where he was nowhere all weekend. He came back in the next round in America and took a stunning victory uh, where, of course, he beat Alex Marquez on that occasion. And yet again, um, it's a sign of a champion, isn't it? You have a bad race, but you don't let that fester. You don't let that become two or three bad races. You strike back at the very next round. 
and get right back on the podium again. And it, it just tells us once again, not just how talented and how quick Banyaya is, but about his mental toughness. He doesn't let a bad round phase him. Exactly. It's, it's, it's he, he bounced back. He's, he, he, had a, he was under a fair amount of criticism after Magello, where he dropped off the leading group and you know, didn't really look strong. Obviously, Catalina, where he fell to eighth and never really um, you know, looked all that great out there. But uh, he came back this weekend, shook off the criticism and you know, shook off the pressure from Miguel Oliveira that was starting to breathe down his neck in terms of the title race and just completely dominated. It's, it's that champion's mentality that, 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 uh, that uh, Peko showed this weekend. And yeah, it, 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 he showed it in spades. It was a, it was a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal performance from him. Yeah, absolutely brilliant ride uh, from Francesco Bagnaia. And we'll come on to what happened immediately behind him in the race um, in a moment. But uh, will we focusing in particular now on the championship battle, which is between him and Miguel Oliveira. They came into the race just a point apart um, at the top of the championship after Oliveira had closed him down in, in Barcelona. Um, but we find ourselves, Dre, talking about the same old weakness with Oliveira uh, to a certain extent, but more particularly his bike, the KTM, um, which we, we know is so good on its tyres, which makes it such a strong race bike. But again, they struggle to switch the bike on, switch the tyres on for qualifying. And what I'm seeing so often in Moto2 qualifying, and it's been that way for a while, actually, is that you'll often see a lot of the riders set their fastest times at the start of the qualifying session, um, whether it's because they don't have enough new tyres to run in qualifying or whether it's because the temperature's late in the afternoon, the, the track isn't at its quickest, so the best time to set a time is early on in the session. Um, mm-hmm. but time after time, we see Oliveira qualify poorly for the second race in a row he qualified 17th. Um, and on this occasion, Dre, he wasn't able to you know, perform a Houdini act on the first lap and get his, get his way out of it and finish on the podium. And it's pretty clear, isn't it, that unless they solve this problem, a lack of qualifying pace is going to cost KTM this championship. It's looking that way. I mean, James Tozen very eloquently talked about it during the race itself. He said it's it's a fundamental KTM problem. They, 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 it's like they can they can they had like Oliveira's race pace was solid. He was running similar pace to those around him at the front of the field, but they don't have the extra half a second that you that you need in in qualifying trim when you know when the chips are really down. And half a second max- off the pole time in qualifying in Moto Two means you're seventeenth. Yeah, it it could it could be three it could be three rows basically in terms of in terms of grid slots and in terms of where you can end up as a result of that. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not it's unacceptable for KTM as a factory. They're leading the charge here, and the you know, Miguel has, has got a really good chance of winning this year's championship if, if if KTM can get their qualifying gremlin sorted. They need to do something to give their rider a bit more confidence at, at the absolute limit in qualifying because he clearly doesn't have that. Because this is this has become a trend where he's starting on row six or seven, when his race pace is superb. It's as good as anyone's in the field. So, um, yeah, just just problematic from KTM, and it's just going to keep keep having these problems. It's just ugh. Mm. And it, and it's it's weird because it must clearly be a fundamental problem in this year's KTM chassis because they never had this problem last year, did they, Dre? I mean, wasn't Oliveira one? Weren't they on pole for their second ever race in Moto Two with Oliveira in Argentina? Um, last year, so, so it's so it's not like the KTM has never been able to qualify. It has in the past, and and what makes it especially weird is that even this year, when Oliveira has qualified badly, there always seems to be one anomaly. Uh, KTM, there always seems to be one of them that qualifies well. And this weekend, Sam Lowe's qualified sixth, 
and he was only a yeah. point, but he was only he was less than two tenths off pole was Sam Lowe's on the KTM. Um, right. Now, and he went the other way. He dropped back in the race and finished. I think he finished ninth in the end. Um, so it's not like all of the KTM's are struggling. Most of them tend to, but there always tends to be one that does all right. Um, so yeah. it's weird. I mean, like I say, I I just wonder whether KTM whether their their strategies are wrong in qualifying, whether they're just not um, going out there and putting a banker lap in early, whether they're thinking that. Oh, we'll, we'll qualify, we'll put our stronger lap in at the end, but the track's never in good enough shape at the end for them to put that lap in, and the damage is done. Mm. They're too far back to, to really do anything about it. I don't know, I'm guessing, but the, there are clearly issues that KTM need to need to work on, not just with their machine, but I also think tactically in terms of how they approach these qualifying sessions, because Sam Lowe's showed it last weekend. It's not like the KTM couldn't qualify well. It did in Sam Lowe's hands, just in, no, not in anyone else's. Um, because you know the other KTM's, Laquona was 19th, Binder was 22nd on the grid, mm-hmm. uh, and Dominic Agata um, was 21st. He was just ahead of Binder. Um, so the other KTM's were all from 17th to 22nd um, on mm-hmm. the grid. Um, but it just seems that one of them was a little further up. Oliveira, as I mentioned, recovered to sixth in the end in the race, so he did recover some of the damage, limited the damage in the race, but that was still 15 points he lost. Um, to Banyayo mm-hmm. in the championship, and he now trails him um, by 16. Um, now, as, as promised, let's talk about what happened ahead of Oliveira, but behind Banyaya in the race, because it looked for a long time as if Lorenzo Baldessari was going to finish second at worst and perhaps put a little bit of pressure late on on Banyaya, even if he wasn't necessarily going to beat him. Um, but unfortunately, Dre, for Baldessari, he lost second through no fault of his own through a very unusual problem in Moto2. A puncher. Um... Yeah, I got nothing for you on this one. Um, very bizarre. Um, I, I can't remember that ever happening in a Moto2 race where a guy just suddenly had a puncture and has had to, has had to, you know, run down the pits. It's uh, it's not great to say the least. Um, it's a shame because it ruined Lorenzo's race. I mean, it was there was no obvious sign. Maybe he just took too much curb somewhere and the and the, and the rim just you know the rim of the tire just fell off. Um. It's it's a weird one. It's it's a it's a very bizarre incident. I don't think we've got any sort of explanation as yeah. to what happened. Um, but yeah, it's a real shame because you know it's it, it, Lorenzo was running second. He was actually taking a little bit of time out of out of Bano. I don't think it would have been enough to really challenge for the win. But it was it was still a, a, a very very solid um, weekend for Lorenzo. I was trying to get himself back in the title contention, and now he's even further away purely because of. Something that was really out of his hands. Because mm, he, he he's continuing to have a very very good season, is Baldassare. I mean, his mm-hmm. his position in the championship probably doesn't really do his season justice. Because um, he's he's been terrific. Because he of course he took that brilliant victory early in the season in in Jerez, and he um, very nearly won the opening round of the season, didn't he? As well in Qatar, he he, he has been terrific since moving um, to to the Pons team. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it didn't go his way. Uh, last weekend, second in the end uh, was inherited by Fabio Quartararo, who's becoming one of the stories of the summer, um, not just in Moto2, but in the MotoGP paddock. Because before his win, his stunning win um, in Catalonia, he was a rider that we would never really concentrate on in Moto2, not a rider we'd ever really talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But even when he won in Catalonia, we did sort of talk about his results last year. We kind of mentioned them and thought, hey, actually, those results, when you kind of an- analyse them and consider what he what he was riding and how young he was, they're actually quite good results. Um, yeah, they weren't bad. But we're, we're now, again, much like Banyai, we're learning more and more about Quattararo because, obviously, when a rider takes his first win, when it's such a shock win like that, we're asking, 
well, can he back it up at the next race at Assen? Can he do it again? Um, mm-hmm. Can he show that that wasn't a flash in a pan and that he genuinely, both he and that speed up, are genuine front-running contenders now in Moto2? And after receiving a grid penalty for not pitting under red flags and qualifying and having to start 10th, Quattararo came up with the answer, Dre. His second half pace was scintillating. Yeah, he just carved through the through the second group there. It was ridiculous. Um, yeah, like, we didn't see it coming until right at the end. You, the, 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 you know, I saw Oliveira getting passed by Quattarone. I was like, oh, hang on, is he, is he at it again? And yeah, yeah he was. That's exactly what happened. And yeah, he, he obviously took advantage of Lorenzo's puncher, but still... You know, took a comfortable second in the end. His second half pace was scintillating. And yeah, it's just proven that the speed up uh, performance and the new chassis that he's been given, it's no fluke. Fabio looks really good now. So much so he's actually been rumoured by Speed Week to potentially be on the second Patronus back to Yamaha. We can wow. see Guasarara in MotoGP next season. Um, so the hype train is, is fully rolling with Fabio now. And uh, yeah, scintillating performance again. And, you know, again, an, an, a fantastic bit of evidence to say that, yeah, Catalonia was no fluke. Um, yeah, Fabio has arrived there, people, and uh, look out. The speed-up is back. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. A sensational result um, for, mm. for Quartararo. And we kind of saw it in pre-practice that he was he was looking competitive just like he did, and you know, he seems to be riding that wave of confidence. But yeah, his, his second half of the race pace was scintillating, as you mentioned, because even as early as sort of half distance, he looked like he was maybe going to be sort of fringe to the top six, that sort of result, mm-hmm. which again given what he'd done for most of his most to create, would have been in itself a good result. Um, but the, the way he came on strong towards the end of the race was incredible. Um, just making light work of riders like Alex Marquez and Marcel Schrotter, who thought for a, a long time that they were battling between themselves for the two spots on the rostrum behind uh, Banyaya once Baldazari uh, once had dropped out of there. But in the end, uh, it went to Quartararo. And, you know, Alex Marquez... Taking that final rostrum spot, Dre, and finishing third, but that doesn't really tell us much that we didn't already know about Alex Marquez, and it just seems once again that there always seems to be at least another guy that stands up and makes takes takes makes us take notice of them more than Alex Marquez in Moto Two, um, because we've seen the emergence this year of Banyaya, we're now seeing the emergence of Quartararo, and yet again. I mean, we already haven't even mentioned Joan Mir, who's already just lip leapfrogged him into MotoGP. Um, mm-hmm. I, the more I watch Alex Marquez and this again wasn't a bad weekend for him third's not a bad result for Alex Marquez in Moto2 and he's not out of the championship fight by any means at the moment but right. the more I watch Alex Marquez the more I fear he's just going to become another looty that just gets lost in Moto2 that's what I fear I feel like he has the words gatekeeper written all over him like the Michael Bispin of Moto2 it's it, it's 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 not great and like I feel bad for Marquez because he's clearly like a top-tier dude in Moto2 and has been for two or three seasons now. But the problem is, is that, as you say, he just doesn't have the ultimate speed to consistently fight for a championship. He just, it's, just, it's like there's always someone who's just a little bit faster than him and is a little bit more raw and just a little bit more talented, dare I say, than Alex Marquez. I mean, it's just he's just never been able to put a full season together. And even in this case where he's finished in third, like Quattararo blew the pants off him to get to that second place. And again, Panyaya completely dominated and Panyaya's championship leader for a reason. Um, the four wins certainly helps. And Marquez doesn't have a win so far this season. Yeah, he's he's had always five had podiums, some... but no wins. 
yeah, five poses has always been someone who's a little bit better than him at the moment. You're not going to win a championship doing that. He's drifting further away from Banyaya now. He needs to start winning races. Otherwise, he's not going to get there. And he, 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 it could be a case where MotoGP just ends up passing him by because there's always going to be someone a little bit more brighter as a prospect in the way. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's the fear, uh, Frikes Marquez. I mean... Um, just, he's he's up to he's 22 years old now as Alex Marquez and, and again um, we were speaking about this off air before we started about John McPhee and we'll get onto this in Moto3 about you know John McPhee's 24 um, and if you're still in Moto3 at 24 you're not going to be in MotoGP and no 22's not old I mean this is a this is a person who's 20, this is a person who's 28 next month talking so uh, yeah, I'm in mm. no place to talk about people's age um, but again in Grand Prix racing terms, for riders who are, you know, on the ascent in their career and looking at a MotoGP future, if you're not in MotoGP by 22, or not at least on the verge of Moto of MotoGP by 22 and winning Moto2 championships, you kind of get the feeling that they're never going to get there. And again, that's like Dre says, this is not to take away from Alex Marquez as a rider. He is a fantastic. No, he's he's no. a Moto3 world champion, um, and even if he never makes it to MotoGP. He's had a terrific career. He's a multiple Grand Prix winner. He's a world champion in Moto3. Um, but the longer it goes, the more you start to think that there isn't going to be a MotoGP future for Alex Marquez. And if there is, it will purely be for commercial and you know endorsement reasons because he's a Marquez. Um, mm. Which for me would be unfair on Alex for him to be propelled into a MotoGP class for that reason when he's perhaps not ready for it. But but right. yeah, a good, a good result last weekend for him. But in the grand scheme of things it kind of, again, told us a bit about him as a, as a future MotoGP rider that perhaps there are always going to be riders with more upside for a MotoGP spot yeah. um, in the future. Uh, let's take you through the result then last weekend um, in uh, Assen. Banyaya, the winner, as I mentioned, from uh, Quartararo, who took his second podium. That's the first time since early 2015 um, that Speed Up have had back-to-back rostrums when Sam Lowe has followed up his first, his first victory, uh, Cota, with a podium on the next round. Um, in Argentina um, so yeah he took second in the end ahead of Alex Marquez Marcel Schrotter a career best for him that in Grand Prix racing um, in fourth position he still chases his maiden rostrum uh, of his Grand Prix career fourth is now as good as he's ever been um, in his Grand Prix career Joan Mia who we didn't really notice much in the race he finished fifth um, in the end um, not got a great record Mia around Nassant um, even in his great Moto3 days he never really had a great result around Assen, but fifth is a decent enough result for him. Ahead of Oliveira in sixth, and Brad Binder seventh. So again, the KTM's good in race trim. Binder from 22nd on the grid to seventh. Uh, Luca Marini, who got his first ever front row start of the weekend, finished eighth um, on the second Sky BR46 Calix. Sam Lowe's, uh, who started up on the second row, finished ninth. And Andrea Locatelli um, finished ahead of his teammate, Mattia Pasini, for what must be the first time this year. Um, without the two of them uh, having a crash at any stage. Uh, they were 10th and 11th. Augusto Fernandez, who is the full-time replacement now for Hector Barbara at the Pons team, 12th ahead of Hogan of 13th. Domi Agata, 14th. And Simone Corsi took the final point. Uh, in 15th position, Moto2 championship standings look like this. Um, Banyaya continues to lead, but he's extended his lead back out from 1 point to 16. Alex Marquez is third. He is 34 points off the lead. Baldassari has now dropped 51 back in fourth after his DNF. John Mia is fifth on 75, ahead of Javi Vieje, sixth on 70. Uh, Brad Bender, seventh on 66. Quartararo is now up to eighth on 65. Uh, Pasini, ninth on 63. And Schrotter, tenth, also on 63 points. 
Uh, Ike Lacuona and Sam Lowe's, the two Swiss innovative investors riders, are next up on 32 and 28, respectively. They are 11th and 12th. Uh, now into Moto3. Um, and as I mentioned, the MotoGP race resembled a Moto3 race more than the Moto3 race did in the end. But we still had a pretty good fight at the front, all things considered, Dre, uh, in Moto3. Um, one for the first time in, well, I was going to say it's back-to-back -back races. It took us ages to get a Moto3 winner from pole position. Now it's happened twice in as many races. Um, mm. Jorge Martin winning from pole. Um, but if we go to the very start of the race and to how this race unfolded, where the the sort of dozen rider leading groups in Moto3 are becoming much less frequent this year. And really, we've got Jorge Martin to blame for that because yet again, yeah. we saw this strategy from Martin at the early stages of the race where... He essentially starts the race like he ends qualifying um, and basically asks the rest of the field to see if they can keep up with him. And in the end, only four riders were able to keep up with him. And we were kind of grateful to Aaron Canet, weren't we, about a third of the way through that race for bringing Jorge Martin back. Indeed, yeah. Like the, 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 Martin's been, tried, he's been trying this now almost every round, especially when he started from pole position, where he's tried to break the field early and just tried to run away with it. It's only really worked once, and that was a Catalina. And even then, well, we all know what happened at the end of that race. But yeah, he tried it again, and it didn't quite work. And I'm glad that they were able to reel him back in again and turn it into a bit more of a fight until the, the, the latter stages of the race itself. But uh, it's a sound strategy. It's not like it's not working. It's just, you know, it's really hard to do this in Moto3. Yeah, but and we kind of would one... rather he didn't. Exactly. It's not good for entertainment purposes, Jorge. Take one for the team. Fight, that. Fight for it, damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just—it's it, incredible. It's—it's it's the Hoggy Lorenzo strategy of just getting up, getting the whole shot, and just bolting immediately. Um, and yeah, it's—it's—it's almost—he's almost rewritten how you would go about a Moto Three race if you're—you've got designs on winning it. But, but yeah, we had that amazing pace from Canet that pulled him back. Bastianini, um, Bezeki, the championship leader pre-race, um, and John yeah. McPhee were the only riders that were able to go with him. Um, uh, and in the end. Uh, Dre Martin kind of did what Marquez did in the MotoGP race later that day in that he took the lead with two or three laps to go. And then, again, much like Mark Marquez, he just found that extra gear, didn't he? he? He took the lead at the start of lap 20, and it's a 22-lap race. So this is inside the final three laps. He he got under Bastianini and Bezecchi, um through those, those right-handers at the start of the lap, turns two and three. By the end of that very same lap, he had a 0.7 lead, and the slipstream had gone. Yeah, and that was it, effectively. Um, like if you if if you, if you end up getting caught napping, he's going to punish you. It's as simple as that because he's got, I'd say, relative to the field, more ultimate pace yeah. in him than anyone I've ever seen in Moto Three. He's the only guy that can really do this, where he can, where he, he, he can conceivably break the toe and break the field in a leading dogfight in a Moto Three race. Apart, like I've never seen anyone be able to do that. So he, he's incredible where that's concerned. Um. Like he just has to, he's got an extra point three in his locker that no one else in Moto Three has. It's that seventh gear I was talking about. He, like Jorge Martin might be the only other guy in the field that really has that, and uh, it showed again because again the rest of the field got caught hot dogging. And next thing you know, Martin's gone and, and the race was over effectively. Yeah, and it, and it goes to show once again how, on pure talent alone, you would probably say, well, not probably, you would absolutely say that Jorge Martin is the premier rider in moto three and that's to take mm. nothing away from the likes of bezeki who's done a tremendous job this season who is um relative to martin much less experienced as a grand prix rider and is doing a sensational job to be running him as close as he is in the championship this year um but the, when you look at the the bare facts of it this season dre 
Um, take the Argentina race out of the equation where he pitted at the end of the formation lap for new tyres to change from whites mm-hmm. to dries and finished 11th. If you take that race out of the equation, every race that Jorge Martin has finished this year, he's won. Yeah, he, he's that good. He's like, he's, when he's on it, he's unstoppable. It's as simple as that. And yeah, he, he can win races like this that like nobody else can. He's just got more in the locker than everybody else does. But he's, he's just been, obviously the Catalonia mistake was one thing. But being skittled out of a couple of extra rounds has really, you know, racked up the damage in terms of his title campaign because Bezeki has been the guy that's, you know, been consistent where Martin's got, you know, only one less DNFs than he does race wins. And, it, and, and that's done the damage for, for his campaign so far. Mm. And he's, he's now up to 14 career polls um, in, in Moto3 as well. And they've all come in the space of a year and a half. Um, in, in Moto3 because I think he, his first poll was at the start of last year uh, it's, it's mm-hmm. an incredible run Martin is on um, and he he is now the championship leader once again as I mentioned Bezeki led the championship pre-race um, but a costly error for him really the first big mistake Bezeki has made this season I mean you could argue Le Mans final lap was a mistake from Bezeki but I struggle to have too much um, ill will and I struggle to criticize him too much for that given that they were on the absolute limit he and Martin trying to win the race at the final corner and he just high-sided basically trying too hard to win the race Yeah. Um, and, and lost points through that. Um, but this one, Dre, um, was a bit of a silly one on the final lap at Acid. Um, it was pretty clear that Martin was going to win the race and it didn't look as if um, Bezeki was close enough to either Canet or Bastianini to really have a dart at them going into that final left-hander at the Ramshuk or the final chicane. So it looked like fourth was about as good as Bozeki was going to get. He knew that there was no John McPhee behind him because he crashed a lap before, um, but he went down at the Mandavane corner um, a third of the way from the chequered flag. Um, and in many ways, we should remember again that this guy is still in his second full season as a Moto3 rider at all. So he's going to make mistakes. Um, but if we're treating Bezeki as a championship contender and as a championship favourite and a championship leader, as he was at the time, those are the kind of mistakes that you cannot afford to make. Yeah, it's as simple as that. That's unacceptable from a title contender. That's That was, a, that was clearly a race where he just overdid it more than anything else he's overdone it and he and he's been made to, to pay as a result of this he's he overdid Shot it and 13 points away yeah like it was an easy fourth place it would have been an easy 13 points and you know a, a critical 13 points for the championship but now you've given up 25 to Jorge Martin and now like the the the, the brilliant weekend you had at Catalina has just been completely wiped off the board um, and then some, because Bezeki finished second that day. He didn't win, so he's now a, a net minus five through the last two rounds compared to Martin. So, yeah, as you said, like Bezeki could have easily just taken the 13 points and mitigated the damage, but as a result, he's now overdone it, crashed out, and the worst-case scenario has happened that Martin's gone on to win the race. Yeah, and it, I mean, I'll be interested to see how he reacts to this uh, at the Saxon Ring at at Bezeki, because it's, the, it's his first real... Um, net loss to Martin in this season. I mean, he, he lost out in the first round in Qatar, but that was through no fault. He only got knocked off on the final lap, um, yeah. Bezeki. And at that point, we had no idea that he was going to be a championship frontrunner this season. We thought it was going to be between Martin, Bastianini and Canet, the three riders who, as fate would have it, were the three on the podium last weekend. Um, and Asa. Mm-hmm. Um, but since that first win in Argentina, he's gone on this amazing podium run. Safe for Le Mans, he'd been on the podium every single race. So perhaps he's just not Maybe this will be a learning experience for him. Maybe he'll now just come to understand that, you know, 
I've been on such a great podium run, but sometimes fourth might be the best I can get, and it's 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 it'll be just be a race weekend just for getting the points on the board and getting out of there. Um, and if he right. came out of there with thirteen points, that wouldn't have been a great result by his standards this year. But he'd still be what ten points? No, it'd be eleven points clear uh, of Martin still in the championship, um, which basically could have bought him a couple of second places, even if Martin wins the next couple. Uh, and goes to six wins for the year, Bezeki would still be ahead of him in the championship. So um, right. a lot of his, um, you know, well, I was going to say, a lot of his comfort zone's gone. His entire lead has gone. And now he's got to go on the offensive and start winning again because, you know, seconds and thirds may no longer be good enough for, for Bezeki now that he trails Martin um, in the championship outright. Um, and what this race has also done, what the accident of Bezeki in the final lap has also done, Dre, has brought Aaron Cadet and Anaya Bastianini suddenly right back into it. Um, and right. from Cadet's point of view, I mean, he's had, I think he's had a rubbish season, uh, quite frankly, Aaron Cadet. Um, I mean, I know he was second in the first two races and led the championship, but it was at the end of that. Um, mm. But um, he'd gone eighth DNF, eighth, 11th DNF since then. Um, but because of Martin's inconsistencies and because now Bezeki's now dropped around, um, the fact that he's had that podium finish has suddenly brought him right back into contention again. Canet is within mm. a race, 24 points of lead. Aaron Canet could leave Saxon Ring as the Moto3 championship leader. And given the season he's had so far, I guess he could count himself remarkably lucky to be that close. But in many ways, he should see that as a positive. He should just take this as a complete reset. And if that that's the form he's on now, from Aston onwards, if he can keep that form going on, he might still win this championship. That's a walking miracle that Cadet's that close after, after eight races. He's not looked anything like the guy that could, could conceivably do this. And yeah, I, com I completely agree with you that, you know, Cadet has not been good this season. He's made many critical mistakes. He's, his head's gone on multiple occasions. And yet, <laughs> here he is on the brink of, you know, being championship leader again. Um, he's within range of the championship again, purely through other riders' mistakes. It's... It's becoming a bit of a war of attrition for the Moto3 title at the moment. Martin's had many DNFs. Bezeki's had his first, you know, real mistake of the season, you could argue. Um, and Canet, who's been a bit of a head case all season long, all of a sudden is back in play alongside Bassini. Like, it's, it's, it's slowly turning into the three guys we thought were going to lead the way for the championship this year and the surprise of Bezeki, um, which actually, if you look at the testing, wasn't all that surprising. Mm. But, and, um, you've got Dijon yeah. Antonio in there as well. It, it is yeah. looking genuinely like a, a five-way fight at the moment in, in Moto3 yeah. with, the, with the five of them all taking very different routes to try and get to the championship. Uh, with Martin's exactly. Martin's serial winning and and um, bidding it um, on the occasions when he's not winning, Bezeki's consistency, Dijan Antonio's consistency, although um, always seems to be a rung further down, he's more doing it through consistent point scoring than consistent podiums. Dijan Antonio is the only rider in Moto Three to have scored points in every race, and all of them have been uh, in the top nine, which is why he's still up there. Um, Bastianini's another one, like Canet, who has had a poor season by his standards, like Martin. He's had three DNFs this year, um, mm -hmm. um, and they were all from pretty strong positions as well. Obviously, Qatar, he'd been on the podium, um, and Le Mans, he would have probably become a podium finisher based on what happened the lap after he crashed. Um, mm. And, you know, both he and he, like Martin, will feel if I'd not had so many DNFs and so many poor results, I'd be right at the, front, at the championship as well. But, yeah, he's another rider, isn't he, who... His talent is unquestionable, and he's kind of been let off the hook for a pretty poor first half of the year. 
Exactly. Because, um, again, no guy has ruined it out. Jorge Martin sure has four wins. So on, on paper, you would say he probably is the best of the bunch right now, but has you know has been has a, a combination of bad luck and the one silly mistake of Catalonia has just opened the door for everybody else. Bezeki's been a real surprise, and then besides that, no one else has really looked that comfortable at the front of the field in Moto Three this season. Everyone else has kind of forked scraps, and now well, again, I said are back into play because because Martin's got as many donuts as he has race wins. Bezeki's now has a couple against his record now, and a guy that was the consistent one, and now. Bastianini, who has, who has a race win to it from Catalonia, and you know other guys like Canet, who's again had flashes of, of, his, of his potential be shown, but has made again a lot of silly errors. They're all back in the mix now. So yeah, it's it's, it's it's it could become a season where whoever makes the least amount of mistakes will end up ultimately benefiting from this scenario because as it stands right now, everyone's tripping up on each other, and it's kind of opened the door for people that probably don't deserve to be there on merit alone. Hmm. And, and the one we haven't mentioned, the one championship you can tell you we haven't really talked about at length is, is Fabio Di Gian Antonio, who um, is, is third in the points at the moment. He only trails uh, his teammate and championship leader, Martin, by 14 points, um, even though he hasn't finished in the top two yet all season. Um, and, and Di Gian Antonio is just doing this through pure consistency of, of just accumulating points at every round. As I mentioned, he's the only guy to have done so uh, this season. Um but I guess his his problem in, in Assendre, I mean, he could have easily... I mean, he was second going in, so he really will feel he could and should have been the guy um, to inherit mm-hmm. the championship lead from Bezeki when he crashed. Um, but he was way too far back. Basically, Dijan Antonio found himself in the wrong group early on um, and was unable to jump across the gap and get himself into that leading group. And you kind of feel for Dijan Antonio, who's not having a bad season at all, but um, this run he's having of still chasing his first win he's not going to be able to win this championship unless he breaks that duck, is he? Exactly. He's not going to win this on second places. They're like, especially with Jorge Martin, with Jorge Martin around, who is probably going to win four or five more of these, given how incredible his pace can be on occasion. Um, I mean, Saxon ring, like, you know, for example, no real lengthy straights to, to play with it. It's going to be a, a test of rider skill. Um, Martin is going to be a championship on second base. It's a bit like Valentino Rossi in the MotoGP championship right now, where it's like, yeah, it's great. You're finishing second, third, fourth, that sort of ballpark area. And, you know, you're not making any major mistakes, really, and you're getting some decent results. But if you're not winning, you're not going to do the real damage to Martin, who is the favorite for this championship at the moment. So he's got to break the duck to have any real chance. And as it stands right now, um, he's on the outside looking in and probably will be unless he starts winning and probably two or three more to realistically give himself a chance. Hmm, yeah. Um, Dijan Antonio is still very much in contention, but you, you kind of feel that he's he's clinging on in that championship battle whilst he's not taking victories. Um, here's how the race finished then. Asin Martin, the winner by six tenths of a second, which is a chasm of a lead in Moto 3 terms. Um, from Aaron Cannett hmm. in second. Um, that's his third podium of the year. Um, Enea Bastianini in third. Uh, Jaume Messia. Uh, that's a career best for him. He took fourth in the end. Um, mm. The top KTM in the end, once Bezeki and McPhee had jumped out of the way of him. Um, so shout out to him for Messiah. Best result in Moto3 and fourth. Um, and top KTM rider. Jack of Confile, the sole Prustal GP bike left once Bezeki had crashed out. He took fifth. 
um, having been passed by Messier at the final chicane. Uh, Lorenzo Della Porta, that's his best result in sixth since his podium in Qatar at the opening round um, on the second of the Leopard Hondas. Darren Binder, who we've barely seen at all this season, was up in seventh. Um, so good to see him sort of back on form um, on the uh, Soul Red Bull KTM IO bike. Uh, Gabriel Rodrigo, of course, took his first podium last time out. He was eighth, ahead of Dijan Antonio in ninth, and Marcos Ramirez in Ramirez in tenth. Hallelujah! First points of the season for Nicolo Bulliger in eleventh. Yeah, um, he finally gets on the board. Um, his teammate Dennis Foggia was twelfth. Um, Tatsuki Suzuki thirteenth. The um, Le Mans winner Albert Arenas, who's done next to nothing since he took that win, he scored points in fourteenth. Uh, and Nicolo Antonelli, who of course missed the Catalonia race to injury, he returned to take the final point at Assen in 15th position. Uh, we've already outlined the championship challenge, uh, championship standings to you, but just once again, Martin leads it um, at the moment. He has 105 points, two clear of Bezeki on 103. Um, we have Dejan Antonio third on 91, Bastian Indy fourth on 84, and Canet fifth on 81. Um, so 24 points covers the top five. Um, sixth at the moment in the championship. Um, is Rodrigo ahead of Andrea Migno, who failed to score um, last weekend. He crashed and finished 26th. Jakob Kornfile is 8th in the points at the moment, ahead of Nicolo Antonelli and Marcos Ramirez, who rounds out the top 10 at the moment. Uh, outside of the top 10, the headlines were really from Masia, who, as I mentioned, took 4th. That takes him ahead of Alonso Lopez once again, as they continue their battle for the Rookie of the Year um, in Moto3. Um, next round of all three classes... Um, of course, that's MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 is in around about a week's time. And that is the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring. Right, now before we bring this week's podcast to an end, we will look ahead to this weekend because we have a double helping of superbikes this weekend. Um, both British and World Superbikes are in action. British Superbikes are in action at the newly resurfaced uh, Knock Hill Circuit in Scotland. Um many kind of following the Lewis Hamilton example and saying that they're not too happy with a circuit being relayed because they feel it takes some of the character away. Um, but mm. anyway, um, it's Knock Hill, so it's it's, it's always going to have character because it's frigging Knock Hill, for goodness sake. Um, right. So so we'll see how that goes this weekend. Um, really, the question going to this one, Dre, because last week, last year's uh, Knock Hill weekend um, was dominated by Jake Dixon, but also dominated by rider injuries. We saw three key riders, including Leon Haslam, um, taken out through some pretty gruesome injuries. Um, is Can anyone stop Leon Haslam? He's going into this weekend with five wins in a row. Um, and history would indicate that Kawasaki's go well here too. We've seen the Kawasaki's go well when Shaky Burn used to ride them before he switched to Ducati's. And of course, Jake Dixon last season. Um, Knockhill always tends to produce excitement because of how close it is, how short it is. It's a bit of a go-kart track in many respects. Um mm. But can anyone stop Haslam's winning streak, do you think? Dixon might be the only one. Mm. Around. I mean, if, if, if Dixon is going well, that means Kawasaki is going well. And that means Haslam will probably be in contention. And, because we'll I mean, never well, know so, whether Haslam could have beaten Dixon last year. Exactly, because yeah, because because injuries and all that. So yeah, like like this this is going to be the like this is going to be interesting to see if Dixon's form from 2017 holds up this year, given it was you know his groundbreaking double victory there, and Hasm didn't race here last year, so who knows where Hasm's going to fit into this? So, I mean, it should be as competitive around as we've had all season in theory, but we'll have to wait and see. I mean, like the way it's going right now, Haslam looks practically unstoppable at the moment he's, he's ridiculous he's having won five straight going into this and this is a track on paper where kawasaki should do well so 
yeah, this could be a problem. Mm, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see on that. It's going to be um, close and competitive, as I mentioned, around Knock Hill. It's a very short, about less than a minute around uh, the circuit at Knock Hill. So um, it's going to be close all weekend. I mean, that that's certainly the... Uh, the, the thoughts of Danny Bokudu says it's going to be, quote, ridiculously close um, this weekend. Mm. Um, so we shall see. We're, we're kind of getting to that stage of the season, aren't we, where the showdown six, the showdown picture is starting to take shape. Um, so, you know, all eyes on those riders outside the top six, like the Honda riders who are just getting back from injuries and will now be looking for a clear run through to the uh, to the showdown. Christian Iden, another one who's had his injuries early in the season. Now is the time of the season where the rounds are going to start following thick and fast. Of course, we have Thruxton to come. We have the summer rounds at Brands Hatch and Cadwell to come before the uh, showdown six are cut off post-Silverstone. So, uh, yeah, now is the time to really, if you're going to make a run and try and get yourself in the top six and, more to the point, stay injury-free, now is the time where it has to start. And this was really where Dixon's run to the showdown started last year, wasn't it? So uh, yeah. keep a close eye on this top six this weekend because it might well start to take shape once Knock Hill is all said and done. The championship fight in World Superbikes took shape ages ago. Jonathan Ray's going to win it. Um, but, it, but, it <laughs> but in terms of this weekend, Ray, um, Mizano is a race weekend that even in the peak Kawasaki dominance years, i.e. last year, Mizano uh, tends to throw up the odd surprise. Yeah, we, we all saw it last year. Michael Vandermark was a, was a, was a massive contender to to win the Grand Prix and and then you know yeah Vandermark very tire fell off the rim of about a, a dozen or so laps to go ending his early charge and of course we had Chaz Davis and Jonathan Ray fight to the basically penultimate corner and then hey Jonathan accidentally but very accurately runs over Chaz's back as you do uh, giving Tom Sykes the easiest win of his Grand Prix career and of course let's not forget race two Marco Melandri getting his, his first win back in World Superbikes um, on the Ducati, and Jordi Torres, who could have easily had a podium on the day if it wasn't for his MVs, um, or, yeah, his BMWs, the electronics failing. Yeah, so it was the BMW conked out on him. Of all times, for the BMW electronics to conk out, that one, yeah. of course, yeah. the, one, the one where Jordi's running second. Um, yeah, so Masano had a bit of a knack of throwing a cat amongst the pigeons last year so who knows if that'll happen again or jonathan just wins both races and makes us all look stupid who knows probably yeah <laughs> um yeah it will, we will wait and see there, there are there are a few stories of course going into this weekend that, that we want to keep an eye on a lot of people have suggested and we can't unfortunately bring you any of these stories if they do break because we as i say we're recording this on the wednesday but there is some suggestions in particularly from eugene laverty that some rider announcements may be imminent and may take place at mizano for 2019 yeah. so uh if that happens, you'll know about it before you've already heard it on this podcast. And if you're asking why we haven't spoken about it, that is why. Mm. Um, but yeah, we shall see. Um, because Tom Sykes is a rider whose future is up in the air. We don't know where he's going next year. Um, and as Dre mentioned, he won the first race last year in, well, very fortuitous circumstances. I was going to say slightly, but it was a very lucky win uh, on yes. the final lap, which he started in fourth and ended in first. Um, but we'll see where he lands. Um, and yeah, Jonathan Ray is clearly the favourite, but we shall see how it goes. Yamaha will no doubt fancy their chances given how competitive they were last year with last year's R1 and they're in much stronger position this year to compete. Um, so Mizano could well be a very entertaining weekend. Whatever does happen, enjoy the World Superbikes while you can because the next round isn't for another two months after this. So so enjoy it while you can um, before the, uh, the two and a bit month summer break in World Superbikes. Um, comes into effect. Um, what are we also get this weekend, Joe? We might as well mention this while we've got the time. Um, is of mm. course this weekend sees, unlike Laguna Seca, the return of the Super Sport round, uh, Super Sport classes, and of course Super Sport 300. 
um, where t rounds are running out in both classes. In World Super Sport, we have only, what, three rounds to go after this? Um, wow, Port yeah. Portimao, Magnicore, um, and Qatar, I believe. Or I I'm not sure. I don't think they go to Argentina, so it might be four rounds. Um, mm. Of course, Super Sport 300, there are only three rounds to go because they only go to the European rounds. Uh, and there are only three of those left. So, um, starting with the Super Sport 300 class, we might well be talking at the end of this weekend of Anna Carrasco either being on the verge of winning the title outright, or this might well be one of the last chances for her closest rivals to really close that gap down on her. Right. Exactly. And the way it's going right now, I mean, the 300 class, Carrasco looks like she's a class of the fuel at the moment. Um, if maybe not winning like she was at, Masa at uh, Imola, but still in the mix, in contention, you know, where she needs to be right now. She's not dropping off those leading groups, which is always a good sign. Um, Masano, again, should be close. So that'll, that's going to that's be very interesting to see how that turns out. Super Sport 300, anyone's... 600, I should say. Anyone's guess. Um, probably Jules Cazelle? Yeah. Um, maybe? Yeah. I'm starting to feel like this might be the season Jules Cazelle finally puts it all together. Um, we'll have to wait and see, but I, I'm starting to get the hunch that Cluzel might start turning the screw soon. Um, so we'll have to wait and see, but, um, in, in super sport right now, who knows? There's, there's, I mentioned it before, there's, there's five dudes who can win races at the moment and we don't know which one we're going to get going into every weekend. And that's what makes it so great at the moment. Yeah. Super sport 300 uh, at the moment, 23 points covers the top four. Uh, in the 300 class, Carrasco leads Sanchez by 20 points, um, with Grunwald a point further back um, on his KTM, and Daru um, on the uh, Kawasaki 400 is a further two points behind Grunwald. Um, it looks like it's going to be between those four for the championship, and it may well take greater shape this weekend, as I say, given that there are only three rounds to go. Uh, in the Supersport 600 class, um, it's Cortese leading Cluzel by two points. Um, with uh, Krumanaka a further 15 back. The rider I'm really keeping an eye on, Dre, this weekend is the fourth man in this, Lucas Mayas, um, mm. who hasn't won now since, what, the opening round of the season um, in, yeah. in Phillip Island and hasn't been on the podium since the round after that um, in, in Thailand when he got Krumanaka at the final corner. Um, <laughs> Mayas has been in pretty average form since that point and yes, he might have won at Imola, but He's the rider. If anyone's going to get dropped out of this championship equation, Mahias looks the most precarious, doesn't he? So he of the four who are in contention is probably in most need of a big result. I'd say so. It's 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 starting to slip away from Lucas, and he needs to do something about it quickly. Um, otherwise, he's going to end up just being out of touch compared to everyone else in, 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 in Super Sport right now. Um, it looks like it's starting to break out with Cortese and Clazelby in the class of the field. Krimineka doesn't hasn't hasn't been as good as he was a couple of rounds ago. So yeah, Mahias has got work to do, and he needs to start finding it now. Because I said he's running out of rounds to make it, here, and he, and the way it's going, he, he 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 could be missing out pretty soon. He, he needs to get some results going and quickly. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as as Henry Chapman has uh, has added in the chat, just to confirm. Uh, the SSP class do race um, at the Argentine round, if that round does go to happen uh, at Villacom uh, later this year. That's mid-October um, at the circuit that is currently being constructed um, out in Argentina. So following this weekend um, at Mizano, there will be four races to go um, in the Supersport class. And given that Mahias is already 20 back, if he doesn't close that gap this weekend, it will be out of his hands um, at the end of this weekend. He might well be in a position where four wins wouldn't even win in the championship. 
Um, so a big weekend coming up for Lucas Myas this weekend. Whatever happens, we will bring you it all next week um, here on Bike Live on episode 68 um, of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Looking back on World Superbikes and indeed all the other classes in the Superbike paddock at Mizano and as well BSB at Knock Hill as we head into the summer with these uh, rounds coming thick and fast across MotoGP back next weekend um, at the Saxon Ring 2. Um, we'll bring you it all uh, next week here on Bike Live. As we mentioned earlier on in the show, episode 149 of Motorsport 101, just one short of 150, um, comes next week, Dre. And uh, yeah, mm. double header this weekend, IndyCar in action, as well as Formula 1 at Silverstone. Um, but most excitingly for our dear listeners, you're back. I am indeed. Well, we'll be back on this one, probably drunk on football. Yeah. Um, by, by, the, by the time we get to Monday, probably still shouting, it's going home via Bedeal and Skinner. Yeah, but, um, hopefully, hopefully. Please, England, don't f*** this up. Yeah, don't um, go all England but, on us. No, exactly. Like, do not do what you used to do. Um, but yes, um, double header this weekend. Um, the British Grand Prix, kind of a big deal. That one, the one that we really kind of all want to see someone else besides Hamilton win, yeah. maybe. Uh, probably not. But hey, we, a guy can dream, right? So yeah, the British Grand Prix, we're bound to get some thrilling stuff in Formula Two as well down there. And maybe who knows, we might get if you might finally get the Russell versus Norris dogfight that I think Johnny Herbert's been waiting for with half his trousers on the ground. Um, also, as mentioned, IndyCar as well. We have the Iowa three hundred in Iowa. A, a that uh, Joseph Newgarden would completely dominated last year, led an IndyCar record 282 out of 300 laps last season. But it's also a track that Ryan Hunter Ray has had three wins around in the past. He always goes well around here, and he's now becoming a true title contender in his own right as well. So, the, the, given the way the championship's been playing up at the moment, um, Thanks, Henry, for correcting me. It was 2016. Helio won in 2017. Mm. Spider-Man got to climb the fence again. Good good reference, Henry. Thanks for the catch. Um, but, um, yeah, quite right. A big doubleheader coming up, uh, you know, this weekend with the British Grand Prix in Iowa. And I'll be back for it. Um, as mentioned, probably drunk on football for episode 149 next week. Yeah, and once again, we, we mentioned this on last week's podcast. Any of you have any ideas as to what you want to hear on episode 150 of Motorsport 101, uh, then get them to us. Um, Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. If you want to tweet us your ideas, Motorsport underscore 101 is our Twitter handle. Um, make sure you give us a follow on there. On YouTube, it's YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Our website is Motorsport101.com. Um, and if you want to back us on Patreon and any of early access to both of our weekly shows, either by getting your podcasts early or by listening live, um, backers on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. If you back us at the $5 level, you get the early access. $10 backing earns you access to our Discord server um, and all the hilarity that comes with that, um, including mm-hmm. listening to our podcast live. So, um, yeah, so do back us on there. We appreciate each and every one of your support. It does mean a lot. Uh, as I mentioned, we're back next week for episode 68 um, here on Motorsport101's Bike Live, looking back on the Knock Hill BSP round and the Bizarro World Superbike round. Um, all that's left to say between now and then is come on England we'll see you next week yes